This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, August 29th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, what do soldiering and farming have in common? Military veterans who have gone through a program called Armed to Farm explain how they transferred their skills into the world of agriculture. As climate disasters increase, so do government subsidies for fossil fuels. That story and more on This Week in Water. Then we'll go to our comment line. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines. Then it's How on Earth. For today's science show, the team joins up with Boulder naturalists at the mountain cabin of Master Hummingbird Bander, Steve Baricious. He's one of a handful of people in the entire world who was certified to teach how to safely band hummingbirds. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of the wit and wisdom of Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, Greg Schultz will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still coming up, but first, it's time for the headlines with KGNU's Stacy Johnson. The alleged gunman behind the mass shooting at the King's Supers grocery store on Table Mesa in Boulder is due in court today. The Arvada man accused of the mass killing, Ahmad Al-Alwi Alyssa, has been deemed competent to stand trial after more than two years of psychiatric treatment. Today's legal proceeding is a status conference in which the defense and prosecution meet with a judge usually prior to the start of a trial. The Denver City Council approved Monday a $4.72 million settlement that will go to more than 300 Black Lives Matter protesters who were arrested in Denver during the summer of 2020. The settlement covers demonstrators who say police violated their First Amendment rights during the protest in the aftermath of the Minneapolis police killing of George Floyd. City officials claim police arrested the 300-plus individuals after they violated a curfew order. Denver officials also deny that the police enforcement of the order violated constitutional rights. Monday's settlement is separate from court-ordered payouts to injured protesters. According to CBS Colorado, Denver is appealing in federal court a jury award of $14 million to 12 injured protesters. Earlier in the year, Denver did agree to a $1.6 million settlement for seven injured protesters. Denver City Council approves funding for 200 pallet shelters. KGNU's Juanita Hotado has more. On Monday... Denver City Council set up a $7 million contract with Pallet PBS Inc. to supply Denver with 200 homeless shelter pallets. The city will use the 70 to 120 square foot pallet shelters as temporary housing for some of the city's 5,000 unhoused people. The pallet shelter order will include 200 individual shelters, 11 bathroom pallets, and 9 laundry units. According to the Denver Gazette, the pallet units are set to arrive in November and each have a bed, desk, storage shelf, AC unit, heater, and power outlet. Although the pallet shelters are a temporary response to Denver's emergency homeless crisis, according to the Denver Gazette, they are meant to be a first step towards fulfilling Denver Major Mike Johnston's vow of sheltering a thousand unhoused people by the end of the year. For KGNU, 
I'm Juanita Hurtado. The state health department announced last week recipients for two grant programs that will fund electric school buses and low and zero emission fleet vehicles. The Air Pollution Control Division selected 13 school projects under the Colorado Electric School Bus Grant Program with Boulder Valley School District, Boulder Preparatory Charter High School, and Denver Public Schools among the recipients. According to the Daily Camera, Boulder Valley School District plans on covering the cost of 10 electric school buses at close to $400,000 each, plus 10 charging stations with each costing $5,500. School officials say the electric buses are quieter, do not produce fumes, and will cost less to maintain. For the other grant program, covering low and zero-emitting fleet vehicles. Grant recipients include Western Disposal, Denver International Airport, and CU Boulder. The Colorado Department of Human Services announced Monday that some Coloradans who have had their Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits stolen electronically may be eligible to have the benefits replaced. Other benefits applicable for possible replacement include Adult Financial or Colorado Works. The department says new federal guidelines passed by Congress in December 2022 are allowing replacement for electronic theft that occurred from October 1, 2022 forward. For benefits stolen after June 30th, cardholders have 30 days to report the loss. The Boulder Police Department has released its long-term plan to, quote, reimagine policing. KGNU's Steve Miller has more. The plan, which has been in the works for nearly two years, would invest more in training and launch neighborhood meetings with the goal of prioritizing prevention and problem-solving. The 49-page plan would also increase staffing levels for the city's police force from 190 officers to 206. The Boulder Reporting Lab reports that the Boulder Police Department is proposing to spend more time preventing crime rather than reacting to it. This would focus primarily on targeting hotspots where officers receive a disproportionate number of calls. According to their statistics, the department found 10% of addresses accounted for 72% of calls. Other goals of the plan would be to increase training for de-escalation techniques, expand mental health services for officers, and monitor officer behavior by allowing residents to provide feedback in real time through an app. The Boulder City Council is scheduled to hold a public hearing on the plan and decide whether to adopt it on Thursday, September 7th. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. Douglas County libraries are reportedly experiencing a sharp increase in content challenges this year. The library, which calls requests to remove content as citizen appeals, received five appeals in 2022 and three in 2021. So far this year, the library system has received 19 citizen appeals. The library's executive director told Nine News he believes the reason for the increase correlates to national politics. So far this year, content involving sexual orientation and gender are the focus for most of all of the challenges experienced by Douglas County libraries. Last week, Colorado Governor Jared Polis awarded almost $1 million in grants to decrease the risk of clashes between people and bears. The 2023 Human-Bear Conflict Reduction Community Grant provided funding to communities, businesses, and nonprofits that need assistance to prevent dangerous bear interactions. Funding will go towards measures such as bear-resistant trash containers, electric fence kits, and community outreach. 
For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be sunny with temperatures reaching the mid-80s. Winds will be light and variable during the day. Tonight, skies will remain clear with lows in the mid-50s. Tonight's winds will gust as high as 15 miles per hour. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Shannon Young. Armed to Farm is a national organization that has helped hundreds of U.S. military veterans make a transition to farm life. While they may sound like very different occupations, KGNU's Benita Lee learned from two veterans involved in the program that soldiering and farming require a similar blend of skills. This is a story about soldiers coming home when their time of service is over and seeking a place in the world that requires the flexible tactical skills to fight other battles like food security and climate change. Like my farming is adapting every year because of humidity or because of moisture or too much rain and then you have the opposite. So it's all of those factors, which is one of the things I think that is is appealing to veterans is that requires you to have a significant amount of situational awareness, right? You're not just focused on, you know, putting widget A to widget B and then moving through that process. It's always different. That's Mike Lewis, Sustainable Agriculture Specialist at NCAT, or the National Center for Appropriate Technology. The nonprofit, mainly funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, helps teach ranchers, farmers, and educators about sustainable agricultural practices. And one of their programs is called Armed to Farm. When they piloted this in 2009, I was actually one of the participants in that first class. And that's what prompted me to go back to school and start doing this type of work. So it's a special place for me, too. In the 1990s, Lewis was in the Army's Old Guard. His job involved ceremonial events such as funerals at Arlington Cemetery and parades for arriving dignitaries. While Lewis says a disproportionate number of veterans come from farming communities, he was one such veteran who didn't expect to go back. I grew up on a substance farm, and much like every other kid in my community, I couldn't wait to get out of there. So I didn't do much with farming for for a while. I started working with an organization here in Kentucky called Community Farm Alliance, and I was data collecting, and I came across this statistic that like 1.2 million veterans are on food stamps, veterans and active duty. And uh, so I got really invested in food security and building community gardens at homeless shelters, building training programs to support veterans and growing and producing their own food. And then at the same time, I had my own little farming operation. And that was about the time I I applied to that program. Lewis says that pilot program taught him many things, including how to write a business plan, create a budget, and how to find the markets for his products. It was also the first time he felt the ups and especially the downs of life as a farmer validated. I mean, I know 90% of what I know because I made the mistakes and we just don't hear that enough. And so it really meant a lot to me to hear somebody saying, hey, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. You know, we have struggles and challenges right now. We're dealing with a 
farmer suicide rate that's close to what it was in the 80s during the farm crisis. So, I mean, it's not easy. Now in its 10th year, Arm to Farm hosts week-long workshops across the country. Lewis helped facilitate a workshop in Boulder in May. One graduate of the Boulder program from an earlier year, Jordan McDuffie, says he didn't come from a farming background. I came from a, uh, a more, I guess, urban, suburban style background. I kind of grew up in a food apartheid space. Um, so food security was an issue that we had growing up. McDuffie was in the Army's Military Intelligence Division as a linguist. Following his service, he moved to Colorado and became involved in food justice work. While pursuing a college degree in history and philosophy, McDuffie realized he wanted to work with food. So I started figuring out different ways that that could look. And for me, the most responsible thing, uh, because of my past with environmental relationships and trying to understand the next steps that need to be taken so that we can stay on top or a little bit ahead of this climate disaster that we're experiencing right now. I figured that I just wanted to start farming. I could I could have the most direct impact in all of those different spaces if I started producing food to feed my community, but then also to feed the soil microbes that make our natural spaces shine. McDuffie says the transition from military life was not easy, but farming provided a helpful structure. I'm a disabled service veteran, and that was really hard to recover from, and it's taken me many, many years. And I will say that it was probably some really strong overlapping with when I started getting my hands in the dirt pretty regularly. And I was able to, for lack of a better term, get my things together and, and start moving in a a more healthy direction for myself and my family once again. Mike Lewis says the program teaches veterans a wide range of practical information about farming with a holistic approach. It's thinking about the whole system and understanding that every decision you make on your farm has a ripple effect somewhere else. If we think about it in context of beef farmers, you know, initially beef farmers were just beef farmers. And then all of a sudden there became this awareness, well, like, no, really, I'm a grass farmer. And then now we're seeing, well, really, I'm a soil farmer because the health of my grass is dependent upon the health of my soil and the organisms that live in my soil, which in turn impacts the health of my cattle, which impacts the quality of my meat, which impacts the finished price point for my product. That holistic approach even goes so far as covering family relationships. The family dynamic on a farm is critical. If I add more chickens to my farm, right, I have a day job, and four or five times a year I go away for a week for arm to farm. So when I'm gone, somebody has to take care of those chickens. But I just did this. I just bought a whole nother round of laying hens and doubled our flock. So I just made another two hours of work for my wife and kids twice a month when I'm not home. You know, and if I don't say, hey, which I didn't, then my wife is going to say, what were you thinking? And I'm going to say, well, clearly I wasn't. I was thinking that adding these extra layers was going to make us another $150 a week because I had a market for them. But then I didn't realize that because I'm not in touch with the soccer schedule, that that means I got to hire somebody to pay my, to get somebody to drive my kid to school. Even before we get into the business plan, we talk about the, the family dynamics and about how to evaluate that. 
as you're putting together your plan so that you make sure everybody's voice is heard and you don't create challenges down the road. Another critical part of Armed to Farm is experiencing sustainable farming firsthand. We'll actually go out to a farm, do a project, so they get to meet with local farmers and understand how they've adapted and modified their plans to suit the markets and the climate that's changing around them. Armed to Farm has had over 1,000 participants go through the program. Lewis says over 80% of them are still actively farming. He credits that success to both the holistic approach of the program and what happens when a bunch of veterans get together with a common dream. It's that sort of network, right? That social peer-to-peer atmosphere that comes from being together with 30 people that you have a common thread with, and, and then these bonds and relationships. McDuffie agrees. From my personal experience, Arm to Farm grants people that space to have those interactions and to have those opportunities. Most of us that attended already had some dream for wanting to be involved in agriculture. And it gave us the space to to make it feel like it was truly a possibility and to be encouraged by one another and remember that we're not alone in this struggle to, to do something different. McDuffie was awarded a farm in Maine through another program that pairs elderly farmers ready to pass on their land with a successor. McDuffie has been busy this year raising livestock like the 20 head of cattle he was awarded from another program, as well as partnering with local chefs to build a restaurant on the property and creating an outdoor kitchen classroom with the intent of sharing the knowledge given to him with his community. Farmers are, this is the only career space that I've been in where they they want to teach you their trade secrets. They want you to be able to succeed like them because it's hard out here. And they want to talk about it. Lewis says it makes him happy to see his students come back to Arm to Farm gatherings to mentor other producers. I mean, that's that to me, it feels like success, right? When someone that you've trained shows back up to a class that they've already taken to support other people, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing to me is a sense of community that this builds around veterans in agriculture. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. As climate disasters increase, so do government subsidies for fossil fuels. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. Emperor penguins are the largest penguin species found today and have adapted to survive in Antarctic temperatures that can drop to 58 degrees below zero with winds over 120 miles per hour. But the animals need ice for their young to survive. Unfortunately, a new study shows that up to 10,000 chicks died last year because the ice beneath them melted before they were able to develop their waterproof feathers, and it's likely they either drowned or froze. The British Antarctic Survey concluded that no chicks survived in four of the five colonies, and their findings support the prediction that, based upon global warming trends, 90% of emperor penguins will be quasi-extinct, meaning there are not enough to support a population, 
by the end of the century. After their eggs hatch in the harsh Antarctic winter, the chicks remain on the ice until waterproof feathers replace their fluffy down. However, the BBC reports that if the ice is not extensive or breaks up fast, the birds don't have a stable platform for their young to develop. Last year, the sea ice was at a record low, and some areas of the Bellingshausen Sea had a 100% loss of ice. One of the researchers told the BBC that there is hope for the penguins if we can cut our carbon emissions that cause warming. The need to curb greenhouse gas emissions is urgent as weather disasters like wildfires, heat waves, and flooding are now becoming normal. But rather than retreating from their support for fossil fuels, governments around the world are adding fuel to the fire by increasing subsidies for them, which rose last year by a record $7 trillion. According to the International Monetary Fund, support for oil, coal, and natural gas is almost twice the amount spent on education. The subsidies surged as governments reacted to the spike in energy prices caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. A significant portion of the subsidies reduced prices consumers have to pay for fuels. Among fossil fuels, coal was heavily subsidized. 80% was sold at less than half its true cost. The IMF report warns that governments are also implicitly subsidizing fossil fuels by failing to account for the costs of damage from global warming and air pollution. The organization said that to keep the world on track to restrict global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, subsidies must end. Doing so would also prevent more than 1.6 million deaths a year while increasing government revenues by trillions of dollars. When the Panama Canal opened in 1914, it was considered a feat of human engineering. A series of locks along a 50-mile-wide isthmus allowed ships to travel between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. But now, as the planet's heating up, the canal's future is uncertain. The locks rely on fresh water from lakes, about 50 million gallons per ship, to raise or lower vessels as they move through the system. Unfortunately, this year's rainy season has failed to deliver, and drought conditions have caused lake levels to drop. That's forced authorities to restrict how many ships can pass through the locks and to require vessels to lighten their loads to sit less deeply in the water. Making matters worse, the El Nino phenomenon has arrived and could exacerbate the dry hot conditions into next year. Currently, there are around 200 ships waiting on either end of the canal to enter, and given the passageway typically handles 40% of all U.S. container traffic, there are growing concerns about supply chain disruptions. Adding to the transport woes, dry conditions are lowering water levels along the Mississippi River region, which could slow barge traffic just as harvest season gets underway. Ironically, cargo ships run on heavy bunker fuels that contribute to the climate crisis and the extreme conditions. The industry has promised to achieve net zero targets around 2050, but CO2 emissions from global shipping rose last year following a dip in 2020. And finally, next time you're at a coffee shop, no matter what you order, your cup of joe could be a double shot, helping both to combat the climate crisis and to protect the environment. That's because researchers have found a way to take used coffee grounds to make concrete. 
reducing the amount of coffee waste that would otherwise go to landfills and release methane, a climate-warming gas more potent than carbon dioxide. Better still, by substituting coffee for the sand typically used to make concrete, less of that finite resource will be harvested from rivers, thereby preventing the environmental degradation mining causes those ecosystems. Scientists from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology in Australia developed their technique by roasting spent coffee grounds into a charcoal-like substance called biochar. They say the end product worked as well as sand and made concrete 30% stronger. Given that 60 million tons worldwide of coffee grounds are generated annually and 50 billion tons of natural sand are used in construction projects globally every year, your morning jolt could soon give a boost to making concrete more sustainable. That's it for this week in water. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. We now go to our comment line to hear what's on the minds of listeners. Hi, I'm a KGN listener member, and I wanted to call and talk about the um, sports show that has been uh, a feature of programming for the last, I don't know, couple of years. Um, I have no problems at all with it being a sports show, but I'm kind of disappointed in the type of sports show that KGNU has been offering. I, I It's perfectly professional and all of that, but it's, Seems very um, much like mainstream corporate media sports shows are, and I would have loved to have seen it have more of a of a um, look behind the look behind the the scenes show, like along the lines of what Dave Siren, the national sports uh, commentator, does. Not a commentator, but you know he he's a journalist. Anyway, and I would love to see KGNU doing more of that instead of what I heard today, for example. Um, which was basically just a promo for all of the money that that um, CU has spent on its new sports stadium or its renewed sports stadium, rather than a look into the way that money was distributed. Sounds like a lot of money went to the sports stadium, and now they're saying that that's a part of Title IX compliance, and just it doesn't make sense to me since mostly what happens in the in the CU stadium is football. Um, so anyway, I would just love to see a more critical and looking behind the scenes uh, type of sports show. Thanks. Hang on. I usually just let these comments fly by, but I feel the need to respond here since this is the second time this caller has left a message on the comment line suggesting that Jimmy Searfoss emulate David Zirin. One of the functions of this community radio newsroom is for emerging reporters to find their own voice while volunteering to help develop their journalism skills. Sports Talk is a three-minute weekly segment with a hyper-local focus, which includes covering things like high school sports and weekend clubs, teams that have faded from coverage with the gutting of local newspaper newsrooms. Sports Talk fulfills a role in this community radio newsroom. Yes, I'm calling about uh, the printing uh, segment of the show that's on this Friday morning. Uh, I was calling to see they want the newspaper to continue being printed, but at what cost? I worked for a printing company for 35 years. My hands and my body ache. They, they're slave drivers. 
they work you 13 hours a day, half an hour lunch, and you work uh, four days on and three days off. You're three days off, you're in bed recovering from the from the uh, work that's being done. Hello, it is the uh, 27th, no, the 28th. Monday morning at 8.30 in the morning, and I'm listening to KGNU right now in the morning. Uh, they're t- busy talking about football at CU and how much money Deion Sanders is costing. And isn't, the, uh, isn't CU supposed to be mostly about education, getting an education instead of sports and spending millions of dollars to hire coaches and while professors and teachers are making poverty wages? Also, another thing I'm wondering is what happened to the library at CU? All the books are gone from the library on all five floors. So I was just wondering, what happened to the library at CU in Boulder? If you'd like to make a comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave a message on our listener comment line at 303-447-9911. That's it for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Stacy Johnson was our headlines producer today, and it's so nice to see her in the studio again. Also, thanks to Juanito Hurtado, Steve Miller, Alexis Kenyon, Benita Lee, Franny Halpern, and Jamie Sudler for their contributions to today's program. Stay tuned for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show.